Mark Tui is with us this morning. Mark, of course, a trusted advisor to business and political leaders and someone very well known to uh, listeners of this radio station. Mark, how are you doing? Hey, good morning, John. Great. Thanks. Good. Now, have you had have you had have you have you have, uh, had a joint this morning already or uh... I have not. No, but I know many uh, people have <laughs> according to uh, this news story. You know, it's interesting because I have, you know, I, I, I one time they came and confronted me when I was the opposition leader at Queen's Park and said, "Oh, you know, we have it on record here that you wrote up an article in a student newspaper saying you smoke marijuana and so forth and so on." And I said, "Well, I think you would have found it more strange if I hadn't back in those days, but I haven't since." Uh, but I certainly I certainly do remember, uh, I don't remember any feelings of anxiety, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I certainly remember the experience of being high, and it's not anything that I've sought to repeat uh, in later years, just because, like, I just don't. But the study that we're going to talk about this morning, and I know you wanted to talk about, is that they've looked at thousands of people, 12 million people, in fact, between 2008 and 2019, and found that many, many of the people who visited an emergency room for cannabis use developed an anxiety disorder for the first time within three years. Now, I think if they gone back and done studies way back at the beginning of people drinking alcohol, they'd have found similar kinds of things about when you start using this, uh, what is a legal product, you're going to have some uh, impact. But this has some concerning numbers in it if you are prepared to be concerned about, about what is a legal product and what I assume the health people looked at before they made it legal. Yeah, I hope they did. Uh, the problem was, and I remember talking with lots of experts uh, back at the time that they were discussing legalizing cannabis, and the challenge then was because it was illegal, there were very few scientific studies on it mm -hmm. because, well, it's illegal. Uh, the same thing with, uh, you know, mushrooms and psychedelics now. But I think it's important that people become aware of this, and so I'm happy to see this study. It confirms what doctors have told me uh, for the last four or five years, and uh, this study says is that 27.5% of these 12 million people that they looked at, so almost 3 in 10, uh, who visited an emergency room for cannabis developed an anxiety disorder within three years. And the connection there is really important because a lot of people that I know who are young people in their 20s who use cannabis have self-medicated, essentially, using cannabis for what they consider to be unusual or excessive anxiety problems. And every doctor that I've spoken with, every psychiatrist that I've spoken with, uh, you know, will tell you exactly what this study does is that cannabis does not make your anxiety better. While you're high, you might forget about your anxiety, but as soon as you come down, it actually deepens your anxiety, makes it more chronic, and it comes back harder and faster. And so I think we're doing our youth in particular a disservice by suggesting that oh it's it's legal so it must be okay for you well it's not any more than legal cigarettes are or legal alcohol is but we don't do much education at all about the dangers the problems of cannabis and i think that's a mistake the other piece of this story john that caught my eye was a paragraph near the end that says about 35 percent of people who report using cannabis in the previous 30 days study for 12 million 35 percent of them who used cannabis within the last month said they were high for one or two hours on a typical day. Uh, I hope that doesn't mean every day, yeah. but I know for some of the people that uh, that I know who use cannabis, that would not be unusual. Some of them who self-medicate for anxiety, because it doesn't work, it makes things worse, end up becoming essentially, and uh, psychiatrists have told me this, addicted uh, to cannabis. And people will scoff and say, oh, it's impossible. No, it isn't. It is possible, and it's happening. Well, and yeah, it's I, look, I'm no expert. 
on this. Uh, neither are you, and we're neither of us are doctors or scientists. But at the end of the day, you become addicted to the feeling, uh, and and if the feeling makes you feel better than you might otherwise without it, that's how you become addicted. I mean, again, I, I don't know what the physical aspects of the addiction are, but I think you can become kind of psychologically addicted to just that feeling that makes you feel better. So I I I, I would buy into that as being something that where you could become addicted. You know, the other thing I noticed, Mark, is that it said in the same story here that, uh, or about a different study in 2022 that nearly half the respondents had not noticed any education or public health messages about cannabis in the previous 12 months. I must say, as just someone who, you know, watches the news a lot, given what we both do, I've never seen any campaign about that. I, you know, that, that sort of says, you know, smoke responsibly or, or use cannabis products responsibly. I, I'm not aware of any, and there should be some that really talk about this kind of thing we're talking about here. No, I agree. I haven't seen anything at all. I know people who are chronic, uh, I would say addicts to cannabis, but sort of regular users are certainly abusing it. Uh, they use more and more all the time because it, it gets harder. I mean, it's just because they feel bad when they come off of it. It's not so much that they feel good when they're on it. But uh, yeah, I haven't seen that. You look at the packaging, it is very bland and very plain, but there's no warnings on it uh, that are that jump out at you like they do on cigarette packages. Interesting. My political mentor, uh, Premier Bill Davis, he had this expression, moderation in all things. And that's probably a place to start with marijuana, just like everything else. Anyway, let's move on to something uh, else. Uh, I said earlier uh, this, this half hour that I thought that Phil Verster had finally arrived at about the right place. He being the president, of course, as you know, of Metrolinks, where he wasn't naming a date because he doesn't want to name a date that he's not going to meet on this Eglinton LRT, but that he's giving slightly more information now so people know they're making some progress. And do you agree with that? Because he's still not saying when the Eglinton LRT is going to open. If Phil Verster's job is to avoid negative publicity, then he's doing the right thing. If his job is to deliver a transit program, uh, he's doing everything wrong, as far as I can see. I mean, you've organized a pro big, big projects, and you know as well as I do that you have to set a deadline. And maybe he has these internally, and we just don't know about them. I can't speak to that. But if work expands to fill the time that's available for it, and if there's no deadline, then the Eglinton Crosstown will never open. That's a fair point. But the you question know, only is, does he make that deadline public and then find that when they don't meet it? I agree with you, that makes him accountable for that. But at the same time, the public just shake their head and say, we're not going to pay any attention to anything this man says. Well, he's, it's his job to make it happen on the True deadline. Enough. And I don't see that happening. He needs to, he needs to set a deadline that's reasonable. I don't know what's reasonable, but let's say 10 years from now, just pick yeah. that date and then work to it and make sure that the funding is there, that the staffing is there, that the supervision is there to get it done. And if you get it done earlier, that's great. I mean, John F. Kennedy stood up and challenged yep. the United States. He set a deadline to get a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth with in the decade that was nine years they they did it they didn't even have the technology in existence at the time when he said that mind you it was billions and billions of dollars but then again so is the Eglinton cross yeah and people have said subsequently to the moon uh, you know objective that was set that they cut a lot of corners and and sort of overlooked a lot of safety issues and so on to get it done and I think today one of the differences is that you just wouldn't do that you would say no we're not going to sacrifice safety anyway uh, look whether he's doing the right doing the right thing or not, I think the thing will be open by this fall, but uh, he's in the meantime getting lashed, and I'm sure he's probably tired of that. Uh, can I ask you whether you think it's going to
going to be a deal any longer. I mean, this this guy uh, Hunka that got invited to the House of Commons and who uh, you know it turns out of course was uh, fighting with the Nazis and he was lauded in the House of Commons, but he also got invited to a reception the Prime Minister put on. But uh, when you read the story, it says that the Ukrainian Canadian Congress submitted his name uh, and that he got invited with a thousand other people and that he didn't show up. Uh, do you think this is going to come back in any serious way to haunt Mr. Trudeau, or do you think, like me, that this is much ado about nothing? They should just be reviewing their procedures about how people like this get on these lists. Yeah, I think this is the get that keeps on giving. Yeah, uh, it's uh, this will keep haunting the prime minister, not necessarily because it of itself deserves it, but because he won't answer the question and sort of uh, like he's dodging responsibility of any kind, any shape, any sort. And as long as he keeps doing that, every time there's an iota of connection between his office and uh, this man, uh, he's going to wear it. I guess that's exactly right. So uh, do you carry a wallet, Mark? I do, because I'm old enough to actually have to pay bills, unlike Gen Zers <laughs> who, A, oh my God, that's funny. That's who, who funny. never have to pay the bills, because if their phone doesn't work, well, then Dad will cover it. Uh, and most of them couldn't carry wallets in their pants anyway, because their pants are usually hanging around their knees, and say, the wallets would right fall out. Below their knees, <laughs> exactly. the, the weight of the wallet, depending what was in it. Uh, I, I just said earlier on, I mean, I, I, I carry one, of course, but I'm of an age I I guess people would expect that but you know things like your health card you don't have the option not that i would want to anyway to have your health card on your phone you need to produce it and there are things like that that if you carry it in your pocket you're probably going to lose it so a wallet i think is still pretty useful for most people yeah, although I will say my twenty-year-old uh, son never carries his health card, and every time we need it, he's got a photo of it on his phone, and they accept that. Oh, they do, eh? which they're not supposed to. No, uh, but it's practical, and you show them both sides of the card, and uh, and everybody seems to be take a pragmatic approach to it. Yeah. But really, I think it's the fact that they don't have. It's like, well, I don't carry keys. Well, that's because you don't have any secrets, and you don't have any access to things that nobody <laughs> else is allowed to. So you don't need a key. Uh, that's why these discussions are good because you put a different angle on it than I thought of. But uh, anyway, on we go, and uh, we'll all, we're all getting older, and everything will change uh, around us. So Mark, thanks a lot. It's good to have you on. Have a good morning. Mark Tui, who's joining us for the morning brief.